0: Now, friends, today we come to the Gospel of Luke. We leave the Old Testament for just a while. While we take up the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, then we'll go back into the Old Testament to the book of Numbers. But right now we've come to one of the wonderful books of the Bible. By the way, that reminds me, I think I say that about every book. Well, very frankly, there are 66 wonderful books in the Bible. Now, the 67th one is not so good. The reason, of course, is there's no 67th book. But these 66 are all wonderful, and I can say that accurately and truly about the Gospel of Luke. Now, as I've indicated before, each Gospel was written for a very definite purpose and to a very definite people, to people that have the same kind of a background. Matthew, we saw, was written to the nation Israel. Mark was written to the Romans. Now, the gospel of Luke is written to the Greek, and it was written to the Greek mind. I always label this Luke written for the thinking man. And I'd like to put down today quite a bit of background, if you do not mind, because I think it's going to be helpful as we come to this wonderful gospel, and I must confess that it's a thrill to me to come to this very wonderful book. Now, let me look at some preliminary things. At the close of the 19th century, there was a wave of skepticism that swept over Europe and the British Isles, delusion and disappointment with the optimism of the Victorian era. And on the lighter side, it led, of course, to the gay 90s. But it caused many scholars to begin a more serious investigation of the Bible. Some became skeptical, and others became cynical. And that was a brilliant young scholar in Cambridge, and he was an agnostic. He wanted to disprove the accuracy of the Scripture, and he thought this would be the way to do it. Luke had written a historical record of Jesus, and the missionary journeys of Paul. And all historians make mistakes, and so Sir William Ramsay thought he'd find the error. And by the way, they do make mistakes. Mr. and Mrs. Will Durant have turned out the story of civilization, and I think that they have spent over 40 years in working this out. They've looked at about 20 civilizations over 4,000 years, and I do not know how many volumes that they have, but they have quite a few volumes, and they've made this statement. Will you listen to this? Our knowledge of the past is always incomplete, probably inaccurate, be clouded by ambivalent evidence and biased historians, and perhaps distorted by our own patriotic, our religious partisanship. Most history is guessing. The rest is prejudice. And of course, today, many of you know that even the great Herodotus, the Greek historian, as some... I had a professor once said he was a liar. <laughs> that is, that Herodotus was. Well, may I say that this man, Sir William Ramsay, the student at Cambridge thought that he had just checked up on the journeys of Paul and he became an archaeologist and I have a set of his books, Sir William Ramsay's books, my secretary gave to me several years ago when she discovered I was very much interested in this man and what he had discovered. Well, he found out that Dr. Luke didn't make an error. He went and checked him on everything and Dr. Luke Is accurate. Now, Dr. Luke wrote his gospel for a twofold purpose. There is this historical purpose, and you have a complete historical narrative in the Gospel of Luke. It has a literary aim, there are more wide reaching references to institutions, customs, geography, and history of those times than any other gospel. But most important, that was the second reason, the second purpose, and it's the spiritual purpose. And he presents the person of Jesus Christ, and he's the perfect divine man. He's the Savior of the world, and he was God manifest in the flesh. Only Dr. Luke will say it differently than John says it. And let me say just a word about Dr. Luke. He's the only Gentile who made any contribution to the canon of Scripture. I wonder if you've recognized that. He wrote two books of the New Testament. He wrote Luke, the gospel name for him, and also he wrote the book of Acts. And he was a Gentile. You say to me, how do you know he was a Gentile? Well, if you should go over to the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Colossians, Paul knew him pretty well. And Paul gives in the fourth chapter of Colossians a list of some folk that he knew. And he mentions here, and I'll just drop in at verse 11. He says, Jesus, that's the name of a person in that day, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. Now, that concludes a list of people that he mentions, Tychicus, Onesimus, and Aristarchus, And now justice, he says, now these are of the circumcision, they're Israel. These only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Now he takes up a list of Gentiles, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. And then he goes on down and mentions others, and in verse 14, he says, Luke the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, these were Gentiles. So Dr. Luke was a Gentile, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke. Makes it quite interesting, does it not? He also was a companion of the Apostle Paul. For over in the 16th chapter of Acts, Dr. Luke makes it very clear that he joined the party, that is, of Paul, and he traveled with him. He was with him on the second and, I think, third missionary journeys. And we find here what is known as the we section of Acts. And he talks about they, they, they. But in verse 10, he says, "...and after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia." And from there on, you find out Dr. Luke was with Paul on that second missionary journey, that historical crossing over into Europe. And friends, that's very important to see, by the way, and that is the reason we mention that. He probably was a convert of Paul, and he went with him on this second missionary journey. And he was with Paul to the very end when Paul wrote his swan song, which is Second Timothy, in the fourth chapter, verse 11. He says, "...only Luke is with me." And he calls him, as you see here, a beloved physician. He was a scholar also. He was acquainted with Greek culture. And we're going to see he has the poems that are associated with Christmas especially. And he wrote the best Greek in the New Testament along with Paul. We'll see that, I think, maybe today. And we're going to get into that in just a few moments. He made an autopsy of the body of Jesus, the person of Jesus. He dissected him. He examined him. He determined the cause of death. And he was very careful about that, how he did it. Dr. Lute puts the stethoscope of inspection down upon the baby of Bethlehem and again at the cross. And he says he's dead. But he also says on the third day, he put the stethoscope down again, and he said his heart's beating. He's alive. Now, Luke had another purpose, and that's that spiritual purpose. He presents the perfect divine Son of God. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Redeemer. In the Gospel of Mark, he's the mighty conqueror. He is the virile ruler of the world. But in the gospel of Luke here, he's our great high priest, touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and he can extend help and mercy and love to us. You see, Luke wrote to his countrymen just like Matthew wrote to his. He wrote to the Greek mind, and they were one of the most important segments of humanity. And I think that that would be an important segment today, the intellectual community and the gospel of Lucas for them. You see, in the 4th century, the Greek placed on the horizon of history the most brilliant and scintillating display of human genius the world has ever seen. That is the 4th century B.C. It was called the Periclean Age. I'll have reference or two to that later on. And the Greek attempted to perfect humanity. He attempted to develop a perfect man. And you'll find it in the physical realm. The statues, the works of Phidias and Praxiteles, they all are striving to present a perfect man. And then that was also not only in the physical realm, but in the mental realm. Not just the beautiful man, but the man of reason, the thinking man. There was Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and there was in the literary world Homer and Euripides, Sophocles, Demosthenes, and he attempted to attain the universal man. They made their gods in the likeness of man. The gods of the Greeks were just projections of man, beautiful statues, Apollo and Venus and Athena and Diana not the ugly representations that come out of paganism of the Orient. They deified all of man, noble qualities, also base passions. There was Aphrodite and Cupid and Bacchus and Pluto and the god Pan. Not all of them are graces, you see, and some of them were furies. And that wonderful culture, Alexander the Great scattered that culture but also a language and a philosophy. And in Alexandria and Egypt, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call it the Septuagint, one of the finest that we have today of the Old Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. You see, the Greek provided the vehicle, a wonderful language for the expression and the communication of the gospel to all of mankind. It's been the finest vehicle to express a fact and to communicate a thought. And for one millennium, the Greek tried to perfect humanity. But you see, the Greeks fell short. Utopia did not arrive, friends. They never came upon the Elysian fields, and they lost sight of the spiritual. And this world became the home and the playground and the workshop and the grave. And Dr. F.W. Robertson put it like this, The more the Greek attached himself to this world, the more the unseen became a dim world. And that's the reason that you find him making an image to the unknown God. And that's where Paul began with the Athenians. And when Paul entered Athens, the cultivated Athenians, they were skeptics. They called Paul a babbler, and they mocked him. And Paul wrote, he says that the gospel to the Greeks is foolishness. And Paul wrote to the Greek mind. He said to the Ephesians, for they were Greek, he says, you were in times past Gentiles, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the picture. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And down a Roman road came Paul with a universal language preaching a global gospel about the perfect man who died for the men of the world. You see, the religion of Israel could only produce a Pharisee. The power of Rome could only produce a Caesar. And the philosophy of Greece could only produce a global giant like Alexander the Great. But Luke wrote to the Greek mind, and he presented Jesus as the perfect man, the universal man, the very one that they were looking for. And here is what we have in the Gospel of Luke. In the first three chapters, the birth of the perfect man and his family. And you can write over this entire Gospel, Behold the man. And he was made like unto his brethren. That's the way Dr. Luke presents him. And then from chapter 4, well, in fact, in all of chapter 4 down through verse 30, you have the testing of the perfect man and his hometown. And then, beginning with chapter 4, verse 30 through the 21st chapter, verse 38, you have the ministry of the perfect man. And then you have the betrayal, the trial, and death of the perfect man, our kinsman, Redeemer, chapters 22 and 23. And in chapter 24, the resurrection of the perfect man. And he's still a man, and he's a man today at God's right hand. Dr. Luke would have us know that. Now, Dr. Luke gives us 20 miracles, and six of them are recorded in no other gospel. He likewise gives us more parables than any other writer, and he also gives us parables that no other writer gives us. He gives us 23 parables, and 18 of them are found nowhere else. The parables of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan are peculiar to this gospel here. And he also gives the very human account of the walk of the Lord to Emmaus that day, the resurrected Lord. He was sown a natural body, Paul said, but he was raised a spiritual body And Dr. Luke confirms that. Now, let's get our foot in the door here today. But I wanted you to have this preliminary statement concerning the gospel of Luke. It's so wonderful. It's so great. I only wish I was adequate to present it as it should be presented. We have in chapter 1 the announcement of the birth of John and Jesus. And then we have the birth of John in chapter 1. And it began like this, and it opens with what is known in the Greek as a periodic sentence. That means if you've studied Greek, friends, and you know what it means. It means when you have a periodic sentence, it's difficult to translate it. And you will note your English translation that the first four verses are just one sentence. You've got to be good in Greek. To write it like this, you have to be good to read it like this. But Dr. Luke was able to write it, and he's able to read it. Now let me read this. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now, I only want to lift out one or two things here that I think are very, very important. The Two words there, eyewitnesses and ministers, are words that you might pass over when you don't want to pass over them. The word eyewitness is the word autopti. You see, opso my optic, that means eye, to see. And auto means to see for yourself, an autoptie. Does that sound like a word you've ever heard of? Yes, you're right. It sounds like autopsy. That's exactly what Dr. Luke is saying. He's a doctor, you see. He uses this term. He says, those of us that were eyewitnesses, we made an autopsy. Now he uses the word ministers here, and it's huperati. Actually, it has to do with the sea, that is, with a boat. Under rowers would be the word. Say, we have a word in the hospital for that today. They call them interns. And that's what Dr. Luke says, that they were making an autopsy, but that he actually was just an intern of the great physician. And there have been a great many wonderful doctors that have been willing to be just interns. Dr. Howard Kelly, probably one of the greatest obstetricians that this country's produced, was at Johns Hopkins for years. He said he believed the virgin birth, and Dr. Luke has the longest account of it. And you know when some little pseudo-professor in a theological seminary today says that he does not believe in the virgin birth because it's a biological impossibility, I just would like to ask him a question. What does he know about biology, and what does he know about impossibilities? Good doctors have believed in the virgin birth, and so I just forget these little peanut theologians today, and I trust you'll forgive me for calling them that. I'd call them something else if that's what they were, but they just happened to be little peanut theologians today. This is a tremendous beginning. Now, he said, I've written these things to you that you might know the certainty. My friends, can you be sure today? Do you know today that you're a child of God through faith in Christ? Do you know this is the Word of God? I feel sorry for the Christian today that has to wobble back and forth and say, well, I do not know, I'm not sure. I don't guess I have enough faith. No, that's not your problem. Your problem is you don't know enough. I hate to say that, but that's our problem if we knew enough. You see, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If you really knew the Word of God, you'd believe it. <laughs> the problem is with Those who are ignorant of the Word of God. And I must make a confession. I have a little difficulty with believing at times. And you know, my problem is because I don't know enough. Oh, if we only knew the book and only knew the Lord, we'd believe him. The problem is not with the book or with him. The problem is with us today. Now, you'll notice that Dr. Luke sticks to history And he has a great deal of historical data, and he fits the Lord Jesus into time. He came out of eternity into time. And John puts it in the lofty language of, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Now, Dr. Luke will not approach it that way. He happens to be a doctor, a scientist, and also a man highly educated in that day, and a personal friend of the Apostle Paul. He'll say it, but in just a little bit different language than that. He will fit the Son of God into the history of the world. Now, will you listen to this, beginning with verse 5, chapter 1 of Luke? There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, this is where God broke in after 400 years of silence. Dr. Luke begins chronologically first in the New Testament. He goes back to the birth of John the Baptist, and he goes back of that to where the angel Gabriel appeared to his father yonder as he served in the temple. Now, the very interesting thing is that we have here two names, Zacharias and we have Elizabeth. Zacharias means God remembers, and Elizabeth means his oath. God remembers his oath. That's a strange thing. Here's a couple that their very names are very significant. God remembers His oath. Well, when did God take an oath? Oh, way back yonder, you recall, God said to David, Once have I said to David. And not only did he say it to David, but he says, I took an oath, and I will not lie, that I'm going to bring one in his line that's going to sit upon his throne. May I say to you, that's a remarkable statement. I'm going to read it. It's in the 89th Psalm, verses 34 and 35. Listen to this. "'My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that's gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me.'" It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. May I say to you, friends, it says here that Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, we have God remembers his oath. What is his oath? Why, he took an oath to David that he's going to bring one in his line to reign. Here he's coming, friends. This is just the announcement that he's on the way that God is ready now to break through into human history after 400 years of silence. Now, will you notice it says they were both righteous before God. That is, they were right with God. How were they right? Well, they were right because they brought the sacrifices that recognized they were sinners. But their walk was also a walk that commended Their salvation. Notice what it says. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. That is, when they did make a mistake or sin, they brought the sacrifice. Now, here was the tragedy of their lives, though. They had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. Old couple. And they didn't have a child. And that was practically a disgrace for a Hebrew woman. And now we find he's serving there at the temple. He belongs to the tribe of Levi. And now let me read on. Verse 8, "...came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord." Now, he served at the golden altar. That's the altar of prayer. And he was serving there. It was the time of the evening sacrifice. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Now, that particular part of the service, he's putting incense on the altar. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon it, And that's a normal reaction, is it not? You saw an angel, what would you do? May I say the, the same reaction this man. You'd be troubled and fearful. Now, will you notice? But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And you know what he was praying for? Praying for a son. You know what his wife was praying for? She's praying for a son. I think a lot of the people were praying for that. I believe in asking God's people to pray. I asked God's people to pray for me when I found out that cancer had gotten into my lungs. And people have prayed. I thank God for the prayers of God's people. And so he's in there praying. He's praying for a son. And how do I know he's praying for a son? Because the angel said, your prayer is answered. It's been heard. Thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name John. This man, Zacharias, is very much like a lot of us. Thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, this boy that's to be born is to be a Nazarite. Now, we'll get that in the next book, back in the book of Numbers, when we go back there. The rite of the Nazarite. There was a vow that a man would take. And one of the things that a Nazarite did, he wouldn't drink wine or strong drink. And that was, he's finding his joy in the Holy Spirit and in God. That's the reason Paul says, be not drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Get your joy from God, not from a bottle. we got a lot of bottle babies today, let me tell you. And I don't mean in a crib. I mean hanging over a bar stool. And I think we got some Christians today. They have to be pepped up, they're hepped up, in order to face life today. We need to recognize the Spirit of God can do that for us. Now, will you notice, we read here, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. Now, let's understand clearly that John the Baptist went forth in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elijah, but he was not Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is to bridge the generation gap. You know, our problem today is not that there's a gap between the adults and the youth the problem today is between god and the adults if they had a proper relationship with god we wouldn't have this problem with those that are the young people today i'd love to elaborate on that but i'll not take time today he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of elijah that's important to note now listen to this and this is hard to understand and zachariah said unto the angel whereby shall I know this, for I'm an old man, my wife, well stricken in years. And you know, I can't help but laugh at a verse like that. The great many people don't find humor in the Bible, but there's a great deal of it. Here is a man that's gone to God in prayer, and he's a priest. And at the altar incense, he said, Oh, God, give me a son. Now, when God says through the angel Gabriel, I'm going to give you a son, what in the world does this man say? He said, how do I know it? He said, my wife's old and I'm old and I don't think we can have a child. And yet he was praying for it. You ever pray like that? You really ask God for something and you really don't believe he's going to give it to you, do you? And that's one reason we don't get answers, I think. No faith at all. But this man, Zacharias, he's quite human. I can't help but laugh at him because my feeling is that that's the way I pray sometimes and I'm sure you pray that way sometimes. We ask God for something and then when he gives us the answer, we're a little surprised, aren't we? And this man, Zechariah, says, how I know it? Well, the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and I am sent to speak unto thee, and show thee these glad tidings. And I say to you, the word of God today has the seal of God upon it, and that's the authority of it. It's not what Vernon McGee says. It's what the Word of God says that's important. It's what God says. Oh, how important that is. Now, notice this. It says, "...and behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season." This man now that's been so vocal to say, how shall he know it? Well, the angel says, you're going to be dumb. And you know, unbelief is always dumb, never has a message. I think it was Elizabeth Barrett Browning that made some statement about that if you have not faith, keep quiet. It might be well for a lot of these babblers today that are everlastingly spouting off about their unbelief. Well, you haven't anything to say. Why don't you keep quiet? Let the man who has something to say believes God. Now, will you notice And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And I don't know, maybe you don't see this as being funny. I think it's funny. God, after 400 years of silence, he breaks through, and this very man that he communicates with doesn't believe him, and now he's made dumb. And you can imagine him out there trying to explain. How would you explain and make known to people that you'd seen an angel and you couldn't talk? My friend, that's not easy. You think about that for a little, and you think of the gyrations that this man, Zacharias, must have gone through. And I think they were rather comical, by the way. I hope you see it that way, too. Now, will you notice? Verse 23, "...it came to pass..." that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. You see, David had arranged the priests to serve at a certain period of time. Then they had a vacation. They served, and then they took time out. And so this is what is happening here. Why he had to finish out his term of office, and he can't open his mouth. And now that he is given time off, well, he can keep quiet. And I imagine, listen to Elizabeth. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. And this is something quite interesting. Here is this man, Zacharias, he can't talk. And Elizabeth, she's gone off with him to hide herself, because this is something that's quite unusual. And don't you imagine she talked his right arm off during that period and said, isn't it wonderful, Zacharias, we're going to have a son. Well, now, will you notice this? We come now to another section. Verse 26, and in the sixth month, that is six months after he'd appeared to Zacharias, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And two times in one verse she's called a virgin. And you know what a virgin is? May I say to you, there are a great many folk today don't seem to know that a virgin is one that could never have a child in a natural way because of the fact that she has never had a relationship with a man that would make possible the birth of a child. Now, somebody needs to talk rather plainly today, because we have these men saying that the virgin birth is a biological miracle. I always feel that when I hear today that statement made, and the parallel statement is made by certain men. I've heard a preacher here in Southern California say that the Bible does not teach the virgin birth. I've always felt like calling up that man and saying to him, I'd like to have lunch with you and I want to tell you about the birds and the bees. Because you don't seem to know about the birds and the bees. Because the scripture makes it very clear that the Lord Jesus was virgin born. Now, I do not object to an unbeliever saying he does not believe. In the virgin birth, but when he comes along and he makes a statement and says that the Bible does not teach the virgin birth, I have to say to that man and has to say it very plainly that there's something wrong with your intellect, or you were not taught about the birds and the bees for the very simple reason the Bible makes it very clear that he was virgin born Now will you notice that this is Made very clear here. And remember, Dr. Luke gives us the most extended account of the virgin birth. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord's with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Now, there are several things I'd like to say. One is that the tendency among us Protestants is to play down the role of Mary. But remember, she was highly favored. But also, with the same breath, let me say that she is blessed art thou, not above women, but among women. She is not lifted up above women. She lifted womanhood up. That is the role that she played. Because, you see, so easy to say that a woman brought sin into the world. But also, let's also say that a man did not bring the Savior into the world, but a woman did. Now, will you notice? And when she saw him, she was troubled, it is saying. And again, may I say that when the supernatural touches the natural, it always creates fear and casts in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And I can't resist saying this, and I'm sure you'll forgive me, for saying it, but it was like a black friend of mine in Memphis, Tennessee, years ago, that said, you know, he said, I never believe in ghosts either, he says, until I saw one. Well, believe me, friends, when you've seen an angel, you have a right to be afraid. Now, if you haven't seen one, of course, you don't know anything about this. And I haven't seen one, I know nothing about it, but I think I'd be afraid if I didn't see one. Now, the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. Now, this is very plain language, don't you think? I think it's very plain. No way of misinterpreting it. He shall be great, and shall be called a son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. You see, all of this is quite literal. These folk who've denied the virgin birth also do not think he's going to sit on the throne of his father David. But apparently it was understood that everything here was literal. The virgin's womb was literal, and the throne of David is literal. He shall reign over the house of Jacob, and that's literal, forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And that kingdom is a reality. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And you know, she was the first one that questioned the virgin birth. (laughs) She said, How can it be? And it's still a good question, by the way. And the answer is given by Dr. Luke here, and he's quoting the angel Gabriel. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. You see, no man had anything to do with the birth of Jesus. Therefore, also that holy thing. Let's understand that, that, that holy thing. Now, back in the book of Leviticus, we saw that the birth of a child caused a woman to be unclean. Why? Well, because she brought a sinner into the world. But now... Dr. Luke makes it clear here, quoting the angel. The angel says, that's not a sinner you're bringing into the world. And this is the only way that you could get that holy thing into the world, my friend. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Well, not Mary. This is different, you see. This is the virgin birth. You can deny the virgin birth if you want to. If you're an unbeliever, I expect you to. And don't you write and tell me that you believe the virgin birth and deny the Bible. My friend, you would upset me terribly if you made a statement like that. I know you don't believe the virgin birth if you're not a Christian. But don't come along and tell me now that the Bible doesn't teach the virgin birth. You just haven't met Dr. Luke, I'm afraid. Now, will you notice? "...that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God." And you know why he's going to be called the Son of God? Because he is the Son of God. Now, remember that Dr. Luke puts an emphasis here that is the scientific approach. He states that he examined Jesus of Nazareth, and his findings are that Jesus is God. Now, he came to the same conclusion as John did, but his procedure and his technique were different, you see. My, how marvelous and how wonderful this gospel is. Now will you notice, "...and behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren." You see, the birth of John the Baptist is also miraculous, but not a virgin birth, by the way. Now, you'll notice the answer that the angel gives is a very good one, and it's something we need to hold on to today. Verse 37, "...for with God nothing shall be impossible." Now, I want to emphasize that because there are a group of people who have taken that today and twisted it and distorted it out of all proportion in the way in which it's given. There's nothing impossible with God when he says he's going to do it. But it's not necessarily so when you and I say it. In other words, a man said to me the other day, the Lord told me to do this. Well, I told him that I didn't believe the Lord told him. And he thought I was a rank unbeliever. I think a lot of people use that cliché today to cover up the fact they want their own selfish desire. I knew the Lord hadn't appeared to this man to tell him what to do, but that's what he told me. And he failed. But before he failed, he told me, he says, gave me this little cliché again, nothing's impossible with God. Yes, I said, that's true. Nothing's impossible with God, but there sure is a whole lot that's impossible with you and with me. And It must have been with him because he failed. And you see, when a man makes a wild statement like that and fails, then it causes the unbeliever to ridicule, and rightly so. But he ought not to ridicule God unless he's quite sure God really said it. Anything God determines to do, he can do it because there's nothing impossible with God. But that doesn't mean he's going to do everything I want him to do because he may not want to do it. And that may not be his way to do it. Let's put everything in proper perspective today before we begin to do all this loud talking that hurts the cause of Christ and harms it rather than helps. Now, will you notice verse 38? And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And I think this is one of the The loveliest things that's ever said about Mary is her submission to the will of God. She says, "...be it unto me according to thy word." And you must remember that very moment, a cloud came over her life, and that cloud was there until the Lord Jesus came back from the dead. I'm of the opinion that many of the followers had question marks. But you see, he's declared... To be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be not made. And the resurrection proves his virgin birth, by the way. And you can't deny the resurrection and believe the virgin birth. And you cannot believe in the resurrection and deny the virgin birth or vice versa. And I think I had it vice versa before, but that's the way that it is. They both go together. They both stand together, or fall together, if you please. Now, we have a visit that Mary made up in the hill country to Elizabeth. You see, she's up in Nazareth. Now she comes up, and to me it's always like coming down, because when you look at the map, It looks like you'd be coming down to Jerusalem, but it's always any direction you went to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. And so into the hill country of Judea would be up. Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah, entered into the house of Zacharias, and saluted Elizabeth came to pass that when elizabeth heard the salutation of mary the babe leaped in her womb and elizabeth was filled with the holy spirit now we're dealing with that which is miraculous here no use to try to offer a natural explanation you either believe it or you don't believe it friends i'm so weary of these people especially preachers that are trying to appear intellectual And they try to tone down, or explain away the miracles. Now, my friend, you either accept them or you don't accept them. And here is nothing in the world but a miracle. This woman's filled with the Holy Spirit. The babe leaps in her womb. Now, that just doesn't happen today when somebody else walks up. And I know that there could be a natural explanation offered. But that's not the way it's given to us. Now, verse 42, she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And here you have this very lovely song. This is the first song that has been given to us by Dr. Luke. And as I said, he was a poet. He's the one that gives us all the songs of Christmas. And this is the first one. Blessed art thou among women, not above women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For, lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. There is a person in Scripture that we have very little to say about her, and that is this woman, Elizabeth. She sang the first song of the New Testament. And I think that when you have a soloist like this, you ought not to ignore her. She is a remarkable person. She had faith when Zacharias did not. And again, you say to me, how do you know it? Zacharias was struck dumb because of his unbelief, but Elizabeth was not. She believed God. And here she encourages Mary. Mary's a young woman. Elizabeth's an old woman. She's walked with God many years. And she encourages her here. She said, there'll be a performance of these things. I'd like to give Elizabeth a little credit along here with all the others that they try to even deify today. Elizabeth was just a woman, Mary was just a woman, and she needed encouragement, and Elizabeth is the one to do it. Now we have another song coming up here. This is really a regular song festival we're having. And verse 46, and Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. Now this is what's known as the Magnificat, and it's a lovely thing. Listen to Mary. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. Did Mary need a Savior? Well, she said she did. And she said she rejoiced in God, her Savior. And she says, For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. And, Protestant friend, let us call her blessed but not make her a goddess. We don't need an altar. We don't need to kneel down to her. But it was a glorious privilege to be the mother of the Son of God, to bring him into the world. Let's not play it down. Let's not play it up either. But there's no danger of us who are Protestants playing it up. There is a danger of us playing it down. She was a wonderful person, by the way. No accident she was chosen. It wasn't but chance. It was the definite decision of God. And he made no mistake. Listen to her as she continues to sing. "...For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm." And you remember... Isaiah said, "...to whom is the bad arm of the Lord revealed?" And he begins immediately to reveal the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so here, "...he hath showed strength with his arm." It's in salvation that God reveals his power as well as his love. "...he hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts." I continue to read on, verse 52, He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. There's more reference to Abraham than any other person in the Old Testament. In fact, There's more about Abraham than anyone else on the human plane in the Bible. He spake to our fathers, to Abraham, to his seed forever. This is a song. It's a wonderful song. I wish that we could go into it in depth, but this is the best we can do. Now will you notice verse 56, And Mary abode with her about three months, and returned to her own house. Now you have the record of the birth of John the Baptist in the remainder of this chapter. I'll lift out some high points here. And I read in verse 57, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And the reason they called him Zacharias was because of the fact his father's name was Zacharias. He'd be junior, I guess, but that was not the name he was to be given, and immediately Well, Elizabeth said, we're going to call him John. And they said unto her, there's none of thy kindred that's called by this name. You generally pick out a family name to give a child. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. Remember that this man's in a pretty bad way. He can't talk. And he asked for a writing table and wrote saying his name is John. They marveled all. It's amazing that apparently he was not only dumb, but deaf. He couldn't hear, at least he didn't hear Elizabeth say his name was to be John. And they were amazed at this. This was the name God wanted him called. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. This man, Zacharias, is able to sing now praises to God. Because faith has come to a reality, but he didn't have much of it. And now that that boy is born, why, he can rejoice in God. And isn't that, again, a very human quality for many of us, that when God hears and answers prayer, why, then we can really rejoice. And I think that's sometimes the reason that God answers prayer for some of us weaker saints. So we'll have something to rejoice about. Because we don't do much rejoicing, you see, unless we have a very strong faith. Now, will you notice? We read here, his mouth was open, and his tongue loose. And he spake and praised God, and fear came on all that dwelt around about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, it was quite obvious that this was to be an unusual child. And notice now that Zacharias, who was dumb for a period of about nine months, he's now not only able to speak, but he's going to join in and sing us a solo. We've had a solo by Elizabeth. She sang the first one. Mary sang the second one. And I think it's quite proper now that Zacharias... Sing us the third one. Will you listen to him? His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Now, this is a song that we have here. It's a prophecy, but it's a song. Now, listen. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, this man isn't in the line of David, but he recognizes that this boy is to be the forerunner. He's the one that Malachi had spoken of. He's the one that Isaiah had spoken of. He is the one that was to come to make the announcement of the coming of the Messiah. And the presence of the forerunner indicates that the Messiah is not far behind, that he's coming along and though they may not know too much at this time. Now will you notice? And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now, you see, God had promised that to Abraham, and they still believe the promises of Abraham, that they're to be fulfilled. There are some today that have given up. They do not believe God will make good the promises that he made to Abraham. And friends, you have no more right to believe in John 3:16 and discount the promises God made to Abraham you have no right to do that if God is going to make good John 3:16 to you he's going to make good his promises he made to Abraham and all of these people believe that at that time now notice what he says here he says and thou child shall be called the prophet of the highest For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. You see, he shall be called the prophet of the highest. He shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, verse 78, "...through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us." He knew that the Messiah was in their midst to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, that is a promise that God had made through Malachi, and he'd also made it through Isaiah. Verse 80, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and he was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. John the Baptist was a very unusual person. We've seen that already in the other two Gospels, and we'll continue to see it as we go along.